We are joined today by Rabbi Brant Rosen of Tzedek Chicago, which made headlines in the last couple of weeks for being the first U.S. synagogue to include anti-Zionism as one of its core principles. There are more Jews who are publicly defining themselves as anti-Zionists. Along with that, there's been a strong effort by the government of Israel and advocacy organizations to tar anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism. There's an understanding that there is a rise, particularly in the Jewish community, of Jews who are out of principle and out of conscience, defining themselves in opposition to Zionism, rooted in a fundamental injustice, particularly in a land that has always been multi-ethnic and multi-religious. Yeah. Jews were anti-Zionist before they were Zionist because it was Christians who were preaching Zionism for the longest time. That is and then, true. That and is Jews true. were like, how about we don't get raptured, actually? What does it mean to be a Jew? What is the confusing part about do not kill and do not steal? <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gazan Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram. And you can call me Mikey Intifada if you think being an anti-Zionist Jew is bad, but burning olive trees is a good Jew. <laughs> Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. And if you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Find us also on Patreon where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes and additional one to two podcasts per week, including our latest podcast, the Patreon Pod. It's a little more laid back. We talk politics, Palestine, pop culture, and get a little more personal between Michael and myself. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only. So really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash Palestine Pod. So Rabbi Rosen, I don't know how much you have checked our podcast out, but basically, you know, the premise is Michael is a comedian i am a lawyer and uh wait i am we're heavy right. on the anti-zionist <laughs> theme throughout our entire show obviously michael's jewish and i'm palestinian but we are you know we're not a normalizer podcast we are heavy heavy anti-zionist so <laughs> it's really a pleasure to, to be able to talk to you because uh because you know you value that as well so thanks yes i have i've checked out your a few of your uh episodes since we connected and okay, uh, great. it's it's on my list now oh thank cool. you thanks <laughs> okay yeah i thought thanks. your your episode about tantor was really powerful and really oh, so, thank you so yeah much. i pre appreciate what you do it's, love it I mean, we appreciate yeah, you I'm, it's gonna be yeah. a great interview let's get this popping <laughs> We are joined today by Rabbi Brant Rosen of Tzedek Chicago, which made headlines in the last couple of weeks for being the first U.S. synagogue to include anti-Zionism as one of its core principles. We can't wait to talk to you about this, Rabbi. But for our listeners who don't know you, I'm going to provide just a quick introduction. Rabbi Brant was ordained by the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in 1992 and served congregations in Los Angeles and Denver before coming to Chicago in 1998 to serve as the rabbi of Jewish Reconstructionist Congregation. Rabbi Brandt became an increasingly vocal activist for justice and human rights, particularly with respect to Israel-Palestine. And after publicly wrestling with his relationship to Israel and openly questioning his lifelong Zionism, he eventually became a prominent Jewish presence in the Palestine Solidarity Movement. 
He co-founded the Jewish Voice for Peace Rabbinical Council and Ta'anit Tzedek Jewish Fast for Gaza. Rabbi Brandt is also author of Wrestling in the Daylight, A Rabbi's Path to Palestinian Solidarity. And his essays have appeared in a number of anthologies like Zionism in the Quest for Peace in the Holy Land, On Anti-Semitism, Solidarity and the Struggle for Justice, and Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, Stories of Personal Transformation. Rabbi Brandt, welcome to the Palestine Pod. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. We're so happy to have you. So Tzedek Chicago was founded seven years ago, in part to create a Jewish community that is free from strong attachment to Israel. The congregation originally characterized itself as non-Zionist, but last week became anti-Zionist. So why anti-Zionism as opposed to non-Zionism, and why now? That's a great question to start with. When we started in 2015, as you said, we were very consciously trying to create a, a Jewish congregation, a Jewish spiritual community for Jews and folks in general who wanted to affiliate in a Jewish community but did not define themselves as Zionists. So at the time, we used the word non-Zionism. And I can't really tell you if we had long conversations about that specific term, but since that time, uh, I think we've been having internal conversations about about the difference between non-Zionism and anti-Zionism. And I think largely when you say why now, I think it's because the profile of Jewish non-Zionists has, has risen. I think there are more Jews who are publicly defining themselves as anti-Zionist. And I think it's not a coincidence that along with that, there's been a strong effort by the mainstream Jewish community and the the government of Israel and Israel advocacy organizations to tar anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism. We are hearing more and more rhetoric along those terms. And I think it's largely a backlash. I think it's there. there's a, an understanding that there is a rise, particularly in the Jewish community, uh, of, of Jews who are out of principle and out of conscience uh, defining themselves in opposition to Zionism. And I think when we talk about what is the difference between the two, I would say that non-Zionist, it's a neutral term. It just simply means you are not Zionist, but it doesn't say anything more uh, about what that really means. Whereas anti-Zionist really is, is an ideological statement, right? It's, a, it's, it's aligning oneself with a point of view that understands that Zionism is a ideology and a movement that is rooted in a fundamental injustice. It is, it is rooted in the creation and maintenance of a, an exclusively Jewish ethnostate that is predicated on the identity of one particular group of people. And as such, um, is structurally inequitable, is structurally unjust, uh, particularly in a land that has always been multi-ethnic and multi-religious. We didn't have any real formal talks about this among our leadership until relatively recently, but I was having a, a conversation with our president, our, our congregation president, Scout Bratt, and we were talking and I, I mentioned to them, you know, do you think maybe it's time to start talking about, about sharpening our core values to include anti-Zionism? And they said, I've been thinking the same thing. And so this really began as just a personal conversation. So we brought it to the board, our next board meeting. And this was late last year, in December, I think. We had a great conversation. It was, a really, it was not your usual 
you know, discussion on a board meeting, a board agenda. It was powerful. And we, in the end, the board decided unanimously, actually, to change the word, actually change. It's really a half a word <laughs> from non to anti uh, in our core value statement, which was a quite, a quite an extensive statement. This was one part of a much larger statement that's not only about Zionism. I got to um, say, the most surprising thing about that is you got a room full of Jews to agree. It was surprising. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, we are an ideologically oriented congregation. So, you know, I, I think maybe we don't have as much disagreement as you might as you might think, but we're Jews. Right. Absolutely. Right. Debate is in our DNA. So I was surprised. I did not expect it to be unanimous, but the board decided they didn't want to just hand that down and up from on high and, and change unilaterally the core values without having a, a larger congregational conversation about it. So the board decided to create a community process by which our members engaged in conversation with one another about the issue. And it, it took a few months. It started in late December and we had a series of membership meetings that were facilitated and it was an amazing process. It was, it was, you know, I think we had a lot of discussion about, about not just Zionism, but the anti-racist movement in general. And, you know, there was a quote, a famous quote by Angela Davis that I think was very impactful in our conversation, which is in a racist world, it's not enough to be unracist. You have to be anti-racist. In other yeah. words, it's, it's, you know, it's all well and good to say you're not racist, but when you say you're an anti-racist, you're taking a stand. You're talking about a, something structural that needs to be dismantled and transformed. We were able to really carve out space to talk about a very, very charged and difficult issue in, in the end in what was a very, what I thought was a very thoughtful manner, which is unusual for this particular issue. As you know, it's very difficult to talk about Zionism and anti-Zionism in a way that's not polarized and you know, full of uh, unhelpful rhetoric, to put it mildly. And then we held an online vote from our membership. And uh, in the end, over over half of our households uh, cast votes, and it was about 72% in favor of making the change. So that's, uh, that's what we did and made it official uh, just about two weeks ago. I am so proud of the congregation. And uh, I was failing when I heard about it, honestly. I'm so excited to talk to you about it because, you know, what is what is non-Zionism? As you say, it's a wishy-washy word, right? If if anybody said that they were a non-racist, I'd be like, that guy's racist, right? Like, <laughs> at least in private. Super happy to hear about this development. Thank you. And Thanks, Michael. I think that, you know, you serve as like a global hub of anti-Zionism, like for Jews, right? Because I'm not from Chicago, but I still feel a kinship to your congregation as a result of this. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, and, and it's important to, to note that Jewish anti-Zionism has been around since, since Zionism, you know, it's, this is nothing long nothing before new. Zionism, right? It was, well, it was yeah. Jews were anti-Zionist before they were Zionist because it was, um, it was Christians who were preaching Zionism for the longest time. That is and then, true. That and is Jews true. were like, how about we don't get raptured, actually? Jewish, that was the mainstream position in Judaism for a good long time. It's very true. Christian Zionism predated Jewish Zionism, which many people don't know. And 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 before the concept of modern Zionism, modern nationalism, I should say, political nationalism, in general, Jewish spiritual tradition was opposed to the notion of creating a sovereign Jewish state 
in, in the land. Uh, it was very clear about that, that that's something that could only happen in messianic times. But in the meantime, the diaspora is the focal point of Jewish life. And Judaism was born in the diaspora. And what, to me, what, and to many of us, what is so beautiful about Judaism is that it's a spiritual system that can find God wherever we live. We, we see the world as our homeland and, and Ju Jews have been able to create amazing community in um, very, very different parts of the world through a very different periods of history. And it's one of the secrets of our survival and our success, I, I, would, I would argue. So I think in, in addition to being anti-Zionist, I think we're trying to lift up a positive vision of, of, dias of diasporic life, which you know, has always been just central to, to, to Jews and Judaism from the beginning. So I'm reading Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro's book now, The Empty Wagon, all 1,200 pages of it. It's, it's, it's a big book. That's um, actually the anti-Zionist Torah, if you've ever... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in it, he speaks about why Zionism is inconsistent with Jewish belief and about the need to remain in exile. So is this something that factored at all in your decision to oppose Zionism? Or was the decision really more rooted in the human rights issues that are at stake? I think I, it's hard to separate the two, I would say. I, I don't see them as, 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 a, as a binary. I think, you know, when you live, when you affirm a diaspora consciousness. And I would, you know, there are other peoples who live in a diaspora, by the way, it's not unique to Jews. Palestinians, for instance, have a diaspora. And, you know, African-Americans understand the world in diasporic ways as well. And I think when you have a diaspora consciousness that automatically puts you in a sense of connection and empathy with all peoples who are marginalized and all peoples who live on the periphery and are otherized, and so human rights and, and diaspora, I think, are two sides of the same coin. And, you know, exile is a word that for many people, I think, is a pejorative term. You know, uh, the, the Hebrew word is galut, uh, for, and it's often translated as exile. But, you know, I think it, it's also at its core a very existential statement that we're all we're all, in a sense, living in a kind of an exile. It's just part of the human experience. So, you know, I, I think this is just a way of trying to unpack what this means, but also to attach a, a, an important power analysis to it, to understand that, the, that historically throughout the world, there have been those in power and those who have been oppressed by, by state power. And when you live with diaspora consciousness, that gives you a sense of solidarity with all peoples who are marginalized, I would argue. I hope all that, that makes sense. That's so powerful. I literally have chills. <laughs> I know you can't see it, but I promise you it's there. One of the other things that Rabbi Shapiro talks about is how Zionism has rewritten the definition of what is a Jewish person and has made it such that if you support Zionism and thus the creation of, of, of a sovereign state in the land of Palestine for Jewish people only, then you are, quote unquote, a good Jew. And if you don't support that, well, then you're a bad Jew and has sort of deleted the actual definition of a Jew, which is somebody who lives in accordance with the Torah and the rules and you know regulations that are spelled out in, in, in the holy books, right? So is this, can, can you speak a little bit more on this notion? What does it mean to be a Jew? 
you know, there's so much, there's so much of uh, discussion when you, when you're speaking about Zionism and anti-Zionism about something as simple as what does it mean to be a Jew? I think it would be really helpful if we just clarified, you know, what, what that is. Yeah. What is the confusing part about do not kill and do not steal? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's the standing on one foot definition, right? Could you clarify for us? Because it seems that they're having a bit of an issue, right? right? Just, just be a decent person, you know, for God's sake. That's (laughs) right. Yeah. There's so, there's so many ways to answer that question. Uh, The first thing I wanted to say though, is you're absolutely right that uh, Zionism has become normalized in the Jewish community, which is just, it's, it's bizarre. It's, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's, you know, Zionism began when it, when it emerged in the, in the 19th century, political, Jewish political Zionism in the 19th century. It was a radical movement. It was a radical movement of Jewish modernity. And I'd say it's still pretty radical. Uh, they're, it, they're not, they didn't it, slow it down. They didn't pump the brakes. You know what I mean? A, we're in agreement. But as, as Laura was saying, it's become normalized. It's, to, it's considered now radical to be anti-Zionist. Just a few, in a, in a few years, really. I mean, we're not talking about a long period of time. It's completely subverted what it means to be Jewish. Yes. And I have to say also, you know, since we made this announcement on t- Twitter, sort of had a mini explosion about this. I don't know if you followed some of the toxicity. Uh, I'm, I'm yes. kicked off Twitter. I saw you <laughs> set Twitter on fire. It's really, it was really quite something. But and I would, I would sort of categorize all of the the nasty, toxic crap in different buckets. But most of it was uh, mo- the the most predominant argument was you're not you're not Jewish. This is not Torah. Just read the Torah, you asshole. You know. Yes. Um, and what's fascinating to me is that it's just how thoroughly. The, this notion that somehow the Zionism and Judaism are the same thing and, and the Zionism is somehow embedded in the Torah, that it's, it's just simply not true. Zionism is a political national movement that arose in the 19th century that opposed traditional Judaism, that was seeking to overturn what it had meant to be Jewish for centuries. And in just a few generations, really, it's, um, it has now sort of, it's, it's seized the the mantle of normative Judaism. And I, I think if, if we could at least pull on that thread a little bit to begin the unraveling of that, of that, uh, of that falsity, then I think, you know, we'll, we'll have succeeded, you know, to some extent. So that's, that's my first answer, Laura, to your question. You know, the, the second is that, you know, what does it mean to be a Jew? I mean, we could, you know, we could have several episodes on that one. I, I you know, I, to go back to what I was saying before, Judaism, as we know it, began after the destruction of the temple when the Jewish diaspora in, in the year 73 ACE, and the Jewish diaspora, as we know it, began. And it really began as a spiritual response to the reality of living in exile. And what it found was that you not only you could, but you could thrive that way. You know, I, I think if the temple had not been destroyed, I would argue that there would be no Jews today, that Judaism would have been an, you know, would have been an interesting sort of cultic system that was a footnote in history books, but it became a world religion, a literal worldwide religion after the temple was destroyed. And we learned how to live anywhere in the world with this spiritual system that wasn't dependent on a temple in Jerusalem that didn't, wasn't focused on animal sacrifice, but rather on prayer and acts of, uh, of justice and loving kindness. And, 
you know, there's a very famous rabbinic saying known as a midrash. It, it says that when is that when the children of Israel went into exile, God went into exile with them, which to me, even if you're not a religious person or theologically inclined, is such a powerful statement, this notion of God in exile, that, you know, we find the divine experience, proximity to to the divine wherever we happen to live. It's not out there. It's not in some lofty place or in some lofty kingdom, but it's everywhere we live. And to me, that's what it means to be Jewish, is to affirm goodness and divinity uh, anywhere that we live in the world and create communities and, and seek to, to repair the world anywhere in the world that we happen to live. And that's what it means to be Jewish. Yeah, I think what you and your congregation have done is something that the Zionist Project really fears, right? Which is the open and clear detangling of the fact that Zionism not only has no place in Judaism, but they're actually diametrically opposed, right? Like it's something that I've committed my life to as well. And your congregation stance is the first of many to come, I'm sure. It says loudly and proudly, I'm Jewish and I support Palestinian human rights. I'm Jewish and my Judaism has nothing to do with murder or demolition or ethnic cleansing. That Judaism actually comes from a place of justice. And the Zionist policies that we can build walls, buy bigger guns and rockets and subjugate a people into safety for all Jews is not a sustainable campaign. And it's definitely one that really has nothing to do with Judaism, right? Your right. congregation means that anti-Zionist Jews can step out of their muzzled closets that we've been in for years, where we were scared to, quote unquote, make waves or face reprisals from congregations because we don't support apartheid, right? The people who support apartheid are the ones who should be made to feel ostracized. The instinct to uphold and defend apartheid should be a marginal position, a position people should have flocked away from. We should be able to hold our heads up high in any room full of Jews. And now, thanks to your congregation, we also have a physical place to worship and to feel a sense of community. And I just really appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. I, I think it's also important to point out, you know, as I, as I said before, that Jewish anti-Zionism has been around for a long time. And, you know, while we may be the first progressive American uh, synagogue to, to declare itself as anti-Zionist, there's Jewish Voice for Peace has has declared itself uh, anti-Zionist. There's the I, there's IJAN, the International Jewish Anti-Zionist Network, that's been around for quite a long time. So there are Jewish political movements today that have become an institutional home for anti-Zionists. And but I think it's really important for those of us in the in the religious community to be able to to affirm exactly what you're saying, that this is not just a political statement, but it's a spiritual statement as well. But that that it's 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 an issue of human rights, you know, Lara, as you were saying, but it's also an issue of spiritual conscience. And I think it, we're hoping that this will at least begin a conversation in the in the religious Jewish world to to understand this as a spiritual important Jewish spiritual value as well. Is it more than just a value? Is it is it not a spiritual obligation to remain in exile? One of the things you know that Zionists will say, I mean, I can't count how many times I've heard this. God gave us the land. Often but, secular Zionists will say that too, which is exactly interesting. they don't yeah. believe in God, but they believe that He yeah. gave them the land anyway. Right? right? They busy yeah. eating a bacon sandwich, talking <laughs> about God gave us the land. But from a theological perspective, 
are they not missing the the rest of the story, which is that, yes, God may have given land to the tribes of Israel, but he also took it back. Right. I would see even before no that, take that, backs. That, that, that it was not a, it, this was not a unconditional gift. This right. was a, a very conditional, this was a, a lease with very, very specific conditions attached to it. And the, and the Torah makes this very clear, actually, that if you don't follow my ways, that it li- literally says the land will vomit you out, is, is the uh, precise term. And particularly in, in the book of Deuteronomy, it, it, which is right before the entrance into the land, this is repeated over and over and over again. And if you read on in the Hebrew Bible, that's exactly what happens, that the, the, the Israelites backslide and exile ensues. And there's a, there's a, there's a, you know, a very strong sense that the land does not belong to anyone. And actually in the book of Leviticus, it says the you shall not um, sell the land beyond reclaim because the land is not yours. It's mine. God says that the land belongs to me and you're, you are strangers on it. You are gerim on, on the land. So that's, you know, when, when Zionists say God gave us the land as if it was just this, some kind of exclusive, unconditional gift, that's just not what it actually, not only is that incredibly problematic from human rights point of view, it's not even part of our sacred text. And then, you know, there are so many secular Israelis uh, who will say, I don't believe in God, but God gave us the land. I mean, David Ben-Gurion was very famous for holding up a Bible and saying, this is our deed to the land of Israel. This, you know, secular Eastern European Jewish man who was using the Bible as some kind of sense of political entitlement, which is just problematic on so many levels. Are you sure Danny Danon did that at the UN? Yes, he did. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's uh, it's a very common, it, and it's a it's a very common trope, and it's very compelling. I mean, you know, this land is mine. God gave this land to me. It's it's a very it's it's very powerful, but it's it's also inc- deeply problematic and wrong. <laughs> yeah, the book did say don't sell the land, but what about unscrupulously buying it and taking it by force? Well, you know, you bring up an interesting point because then people will also say, well, yes, everything you're saying is true, but it also says that uh, in the in the Torah that you have to go into the land and conquer it and ethnically cleanse the Canaanites from it and, and occupy it yourself. So what about that? And, you know, to that, I would say, yes, those are incredibly problematic parts of our sacred tradition. And beyond the Torah, there is a great deal of discussion in rabbinic text, you know, post-biblical Jewish sacred texts like the Talmud and, and, uh, and the Mishnah, uh, Jewish law, that discusses this very issue and talks about what, what these texts actually mean and what they don't mean. And the fact that they were rooted in an ancient mindset uh, referring to nations that don't exist anymore. Right. right. The, the, the seven Canaanite nations, what, we don't even know fully if they actually ever existed the way they're written about in the Bible in the first place. But many traditional rabbis of the Talmudic period said that these, these laws are null and void because they refer to an ancient time that, is, is, that doesn't apply to the time in which we live. 
So, you know, I would say that the biblical conquest tradition needs to be taken very, very seriously. And by the way, it's at the root of Western colonialism. You know, Christians, the Christian Europe has had a field day with the biblical conquest tradition. The United States was, you know, the conquest, the settler colonial conquest of the United States in many ways was justified through the Bible, uh, through those particular passages in the Bible. And it needs to be grappled with and taken very seriously. I'm not a fan of sweeping it under the rug or saying, you know, um, well, you know, that's the part we don't like and we don't read. I think we need to read it and we need to to come to terms with it and and acknowledge that, you know, we we don't root our values in literal interpretations of anything in in the in the Torah or in the Bible or any religious text for that matter. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the Talmud does pretty clearly say, don't pick up arms and seize Palestine, right? Right. No, the, as I said, the, the rabbis were fiercely opposed to the notion of creating a sovereign Jewish state in Palestine, you know, creating a so-called third Jewish commonwealth that that could only happen when the Messiah came. Uh, and there are anti-Zionist Jews today, you know, uh, that are, that are ultra orthodox, you know, the Satmar sect and other other sect, Nutoriakarta sects. There are other anti-Zionist Jews who aren't necessarily driven by political notions of human rights, but by that, by the notion of uh, not forcing God's hand and, and before the Messiah comes. And I should say that we're not, that's not the kind of anti-Zionism that we're we're promoting. That we're that that's a different part of the Jewish world. And I appreciate it and understand it in many ways, but there's also lots of values that are held by those communities that I don't adhere to and find and find problematic personally. So um, I guess in a way, it's not completely true to say we're the first anti-Zionist congregation in the country because there are many Hasidic and ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities in the states and around the world, including in Israel, by the way, that are anti-Zionist. But I would say I I would say we're the first progressive. How do they do that? How's that possible? Yeah. yeah. Oh that seems yeah. like some mental gymnastics. Yeah. No, no, there are anti-Zionist ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel. You know, no, the Naturi- I, I know they exist. I'm yeah, just joking. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the Naturi Karta, if you go to certain parts of Jerusalem, uh there you'll you'll find these these communities are are actually thriving. Um, they call it and, Palestine, right? They, they call are it Palestine. They don't, they don't serve in the army. They right. don't, you know, um, but the government needs them because they are, they, they are a fast growing population in the country. So demographically, they're very important to the state of Israel, even if they are ideologically not aligned. I don't know. It seems like they're like using water hoses on them every time I check in. <laughs> yeah, they're a, they are a vociferous bunch. I read also that for a long time, European Orthodox Jews rejected Zionism and considered it a false messiah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what was it that Theodore Herzl tried before coming up with Zionism that, that all the Jews should convert to Christianity? Wasn't that his right. idea? Yes. Well, he was a he was an assimilated Viennese Jew. You know, he, he was not someone who really identified as, a, as a, you know, as part of the Jewish community before he be, began to build the Zionist movement. And he, he really was motivated by what he saw going around him in Western Europe as the rise of anti-Semitism. And he saw this, he called this the Jewish problem, that we need to deal with it somehow. That, and one, there are different ways to do that. 
And one of them was to assimilate, you know, that, that that would do away with this problem. We could just become just like them. He also advocated for a period of time picking a, a different place other than Palestine, you know, Uganda, and there were other options that I think were bandied about for a while, very briefly. So he, right, he he was not he was not motivated from a a, a deep sense of of, of Jewish identity. Uh, he himself came around relatively late to identifying as a Jewish person, and I think in many ways his identity as a Viennese European. Uh, person was much more motivating uh, to to his life than being a Jew because he was never really part of the community. So in doing research for this episode, I was looking at news articles written about you. And in 2016, the Times of Israel wrote an article about your synagogue entitled, quote, why millennials flock to Chicago's non-Zionist synagogue. Now, the The congregation now more strongly identifies as anti-Zionist. And suddenly the Times of Israel published an article saying, quote, preaching to the margins, Chicago synagogue adopts anti-Zionism as a core value. They actually used the same picture, by the way, which has a backdrop of Black Lives Matter activists. Uh, I think it's funny that they used the same picture for like clearly different messages. But I just it doesn't make any sense. Right. Like, how can you have people flocking to the margin? Right. If people are (laughs) flocking, it's the mainstream. And that seems like it's an attempt by the Israeli media to sort of undercut what they see as a growing threat. Right. So what do you think of the recent media coverage surrounding your congregation's decision? Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I remember that first article you referred to, and I was re- I remember being really annoyed by that headline, Millennials Flock, because, you know, we have a very diverse <laughs> uh, demographic in our congregation. Uh, and it's not it's not just sort of the, you know, we have a, a strong core of young people, but it's that was just such a reductionist point of view. They were written by two different people. I mean, I I think with two different points of view and probably two different agendas in writing those articles, even if they were for the same periodical. You know, I'm of a few minds about about the press coverage. We want press coverage. Obviously, we don't want to do this and just not have people know about it. You know, we want it to be known. But whenever you have press coverage, it's always, it's you're you're going out on a bit of a limb because you're really dependent as much as you try to control the the message and, and, you know, be clear about what it is that you're doing. You're always giving it up to this, this writer and this editor to, to write what they're going to write. And, you know, for the most part, I think it's been, it's been okay. There was uh, one recent article that wrote about what we did and then, uh, interviewed about four or five people in opposition to what we did to to create that impression that we're somehow on the margins when there's there's there are a lot of people in the Jewish world that you could interview who would be supportive of of anti-zionism and what Sedek Chicago has done so that creating that impression that we're this weird marginalized you know uh small relatively unimportant community, I think, is really problematic. They wouldn't be writing about us if if we were that marginal. So that I, I find that I find that problematic. On the other hand, look, we are a minority in the Jewish world. I'm not going to deny that. Part of the point of of standing up and voicing your point of view and your conscience in the world means you're going to you're going to attract heat. And you know, 
you're going to find people who latch on to the fact that you are a minority and try to marginalize you as unimportant. And so, you know, I'm, I'm of two minds about that. I, I also, you know, the, I expected there to be a lots of horribleness on the social, on social media, which there was, and that also kind of goes with the territory. I, Twitter is, can be a useful tool, I think, in movement building. It's also at the same time, its own little toxic universe. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, that you need to, and, and particularly when it comes to Israel and Zionism, the, the troll army, the, the Zionist, you know, this as well, if not better than me, that the Zionist troll army is, is very, very finely tuned and waiting to pounce. And, you know, many of these are bots. They're not even human beings. If you look at some of these accounts, there's like two or three followers, you know, they the state of Israel and Israel advocacy organizations are paying, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people to just troll the internet and respond like this in really, really horrible, hateful ways. And so that's something you have to sort of accept as part of the deal as well. Yeah. You told me that they came at you like talking about the scripture and actually that's pretty nice. Usually they just call me a capo, make a day of it, you know? Yeah. No, I get that too. Believe me. Yeah. <laughs> There's certain there are certain memes and tropes that they uh, they love to fall back on and capo and self hating and all of that is this leads us to what I wanted to discuss which was really the relationship between Zionism and and anti Semitism Zionists will often frame anti Zionists as being anti Semitic and they refuse to reckon with the anti Semitism that is the foundation essentially of Zionism itself. So can you talk about the connection between Zionism and anti-Semitism? Are Zionists anti-Semites all the time? Sometimes? I, I think when we're talking broadly, it's really important historically to understand that, you know, I mentioned that Herzl uh, was responding to the anti-Semitism of his time. And in, I think in many ways, the Zionist movement and Zionist ideology, classic Zionist ideology, has a kind of symbiotic relationship with, with anti-Semitism. You know, it needs anti-Semitism for its own raison d'etre, for its own reason to exist. It, it needs anti-Semitism. Otherwise, there's no point. And so as a result, from the very beginning, Zionists have uh, curried favor with, with anti-Semites for support. I mean, whether it was you know, Herzl uh, trying to find diplomatic support for uh, for Zionism from anti-Semitic politicians in in uh, Russia. You know, the Balfour Declaration is a it's the, probably the classic example of this. Lord Balfour, who was the Foreign Minister of Great Britain in 1917, issued the Balfour Declaration that promised the Jewish people a, a Jewish home in Palestine. Balfour was a notorious anti-Semite. You know, he was one of the big supporters of the anti-alien bill that was trying to keep Jews who were escaping from pogroms in Eastern Europe out of Great Britain. The only reason he he was supporting a Jewish home, quote unquote, in Palestine for Jews is to get them out of England. You know, and that the Zionists have always curried favor with anti-Semites because they understood that it was in their best interest to get Jews out of their midst and put them somewhere else. Balfour was also a Christian Zionist, so he had, you know, religious motives for, for issuing that declaration as well. You can see it today in, in, uh, in the state of Israel's uh, 
own diplomatic approach, you know, that their, their embrace of people like Orban in, in Hungary, you know, they, they have been very happy to embrace some of the most odious right-wing white supremacists and anti-Semites in the world because that, that's a way for them to, to gain their own political traction. So, you know, I think it's really important that even though Zionists like to to tag anti-Zionists like us as anti-Semites, they are the ones who really are currying favor with the ones for whom Jewish safety is not at the at the top of their list. And as you, I think, were saying, Lara, it's problematic because there is real anti-Semitism in the world, and it takes it it takes attention away when we're constantly when the state of Israel is constantly tarring Palestinians as anti-Semites and Arabs in general as, or Muslims or, or those who stand in solidarity with Palestinians as anti-Semites. And you have white supremacists going into, you know, synagogues in the United States, you know, and, and gunning Jews down during Shabbat. It takes attention away from the very real threat of, of the rise of, of violent anti-Semitism in this country and around the world. And that's something that we, I think we need to shine a light on in no, in no uncertain terms. Take away somehow this claim that is anti-Semitic to be anti-Zionist when really the truth is quite the opposite. Yeah. And Zionists like to pretend that there's like nobody in the world who's ever gone from being a Zionist to being an anti-Zionist. And that's just like not true, right? Not even in the scope of my lifetime and certainly not in the time that People have been colonizing Palestine. Celebrated historian Hans Kohn, active in the Zionist movement from 1909 onwards, wrote the following letter. He said, quote, I feel that I can no longer remain a leading official with the Zionist organization. We pretend to be innocent victims. Of course, the Arabs attacked us in August 1929. Since they have no armies, they could not obey the rules of war. They perpetrated all the barbaric acts that are characteristic of a colonial revolt. But we are obliged to look into the deeper cause of this revolt. We have been in Palestine for 12 years since the start of the British occupation without having even once made a serious attempt at seeking through negotiations the consent of the indigenous people. We have been relying exclusively upon Great Britain's military might. We have set ourselves goals which by their very nature had to lead to conflict with Arabs. For 12 years, we pretended that the Arabs did not exist and were glad when we were not reminded of their existence. End quote. Jewish National and University Library, Cone to Bertold Feiwell, Jerusalem, November 1929. Hans Cohn. Yes, I'm a big Hans Cohn fan. <laughs> <laughs> and there are many like him, you know, Judah Magnus, Hannah Arendt, Martin Buber, you know, uh, even Zionists like Achad Ha'am, who was a cultural Zionist, who believed in settling the land, but not necessarily to create a, a Jewish national sovereign state. You know, he wrote a very famous essay, Emet Eretz Israel, Truth from the Land of Israel. He went, After he got back, he was like, you know, there are people there. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and they don't like. They're not happy about us coming and and taking their land and buying land up from absentee landlords and and dispossessing the farmers that have lived there for generations. So this is going to be a problem, you know. And this was a Zionist. He he and you know, there were up until forty eight, there were you know Jews who considered themselves Zionists that today would be called anti-Zionist, you know, because up until that point, it was still possible to 
be a Zionist and have these views. The Zionist movement was much more diverse. But since the establishment of the state, that all became moot. And, and people often will say this, by the way, it's, this is important to bring up, that they say, well, you say you're anti-Zionist, but what kind of Zionism are you really talking about? And there are different kinds of Zionists. And you know, the bottom line for me is a Zionist is someone who supports Jewish political ethnostate in historic Palestine. Everything else is academic. Everything else, you can call yourself whatever you want, but in terms of the ideology and it and the kind of Zionism that is embodied by the actual state that's there and by the movement, there are arms of a there's the World Zionist Organization, there's the Jewish National Fund, there's a Jewish agency. These are all Zionist movements with the goal of of creating a Jewish ethnic majority in that state and pushing out people who are not. That's what Zionism is, and you know everything else is 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 kind of a distraction as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you can't walk up to a family after their house has been demolished. One of them has been killed and be like, well, I'm just a cultural Zionist, actually. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's not even this isn't even my right. thing, really. Like, Yeah, yeah. No, that's an important point. You need to define yourself on the basis of what is real. What What is having the most what is having a real impact on the lives of real people? Everything yeah. else is abstract. It's an abstraction. And you're welcome to do that. You know, I mean, but but don't try to claim that somehow your Zionism has any real effect in the world, that family that's being dispossessed from their home, you know, that they are the, the most important definition of, uh, you know, as Edward Said put it, you know, Zionism from the point of view of its victims. That's, that's the way you understand what is, what is Zionism? What isn't it? They'd be like, I eat meat, but I'm a cultural vegan. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I just want to add on to what you said earlier, Rabbi, about how Zionists collaborate with anti Semites. So, even, you know, going back to Herzl, who wrote in his foundational pamphlet that, quote, the governments of all countries scourged by anti Semitism will be keenly interested in assisting us to obtain the sovereignty we want. He also would write in his diaries that, quote, the anti Semites will become our most dependable friends, the anti Semitic countries, our allies. So this was really central to the ideology that he was building. And it's not even necessarily lost today. It continues until today, but it's sort of conveniently forgotten when the Zionists purport to speak or equate themselves as Jewish people. Right, right. Herzl was currying favor with some really horrible anti-Semites. You know, there's a Russian foreign minister, Plev, who was one of the architects of the Kishinev pogrom, which was the worst pogrom of its day. And there were even Jews in the Zionist movement for whom that was a step too far, <laughs> saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. But that was a tacit admission of, of how deeply embedded the dependence on anti-Semitism was in the Zion and continues to be in the Zionist movement. Zionists need anti-Semites in order to exist, is the bottom line there. The Zionist movement worked with Nazi Germany. Not a lot of people know this, and some people really don't like to talk about it, but there was actually a commemorative coin issued to encourage immigration. The coin was struck in 1934 to memorialize the journey of Baron von Middelstein, a Nazi party member to Palestine. The trip resulted in a pro-Zionist report encouraging Jewish immigration, published in the nationalist newspaper Der Angriff. You thinking of the transfer agreement? Yeah, so it's the Havara Havara Agreement, yeah. So Havara Agreement as well. But I'm talking about the actual, there was a coin minted. 
that has both the star of David and the Nazi symbol on it. Yeah, that I'm not, I can't comment on it because I'm not as aware of that. I mean, the Havara agreement is a, is a point of history and, you know, it's also important to keep in mind that, you know, for those historically speaking, you know, we, the United States has created favor with Nazis when it was in our best interest, you know, to bring scientists to this country to fight in yep. the Cold War against the Soviet Union. And so Operation that, Paperclip. Yeah, Paperclip. That that kind of hypocrisy runs so deep in the Western world. It's it's really important to to lift these things up. And especially when the, the weapon of, of anti-Semite is wielded against people of conscience who you know, who are standing for, for really for at, at its core, the, the dignity of all people and human rights. Do you have a follow-up, Michael? I do. It's about existence of Nazis in Ukraine right now and how they are tokenizing Vladimir Zelensky for being Jewish. And they're like, how could he possibly have Nazis working for him when he's a Jew? And it's like, it's the most disgusting display of tokenism that I've ever seen because we're watching people who are literal Nazis fight other literal Nazis. And somehow we're like on one of the Nazis side. And I'm just a little confused. I'd love for the rabbi to weigh in on it. On what's going on in Ukraine right now? The proliferation of Nazis and how they are tokenizing a Jewish man who leads the country as like some impossible for him to have Nazis because he's a Jew. And it's like, well, right. Actually, they're the ones that are, you know, doing Nazi stuff. So I don't know. Right. That's also important. You know, Israel's behavior, the government of Israel's behavior during this during this war right now is really, really. It's fascinating. The dance that they're trying to, this tightrope that they're trying to watch. You know, the, the they've been helping fund the Azov militias for a very long time. I mean, human rights organizations have been complaining about this for a very, very long time. And this goes back to what you were saying about Israel needing anti-Semites. And so they're now, you know, it's this is, I think, shining a lot in the hypocrisy because. On the one hand, they want to welcome these these Ukrainian refugees to their country because that gives them a better demographic advantage in trying to create a Jewish majority. They don't want to piss off the Russians because they have a close relationship with with Russia and they're Russian Jewish oligarchs who they don't want to anger either. The road that they're trying to to hew to is a very, it's it's almost impossible to understand what their their position is on this war. They they seem to be supporting the Ukraine, but they're very, very loath to to, criticize the Russian government, who they have a very important relationship with. They're so enmeshed in the geopolitics that it's, you know, it's it's very, very hard for them to maintain any kind of coherent higher ground. I think it's just one more aspect of the the fallacy of Zionism that we can we can see when it's being bandied about in the in the geopolitical world in this way. Can you tell us about your own personal path? How you grew um, up and then how you ended up you know, in this ideological space that you inhabit today? Sure. So I grew up in a, I would call it a, you know, a fairly Zionist home. You know, I have family in Israel. I visited Israel from a young age. I was always, was always socialized to understand that, that support for the state of Israel was part of what it meant to be Jewish. My family that I grew up in was on the progressive side politically. So, you know, we've, talked about the misnomer of liberal Zionist and progressive Zionist, but that's how 
I identified, you know, and uh, I spent time when I was uh, in college, I took time off and lived there for about two years. I lived on a kibbutz. I was very enamored of, of labor, labor Zionism and thought briefly about picking tomatoes for the rest of my life in the Negev. But little, you know, I always entertained doubts and, you know, issues. There were little voices in the back of my head that were just like really asking these questions that how can I be be a liberal in so many ways and so illiberal when it comes to the state of Israel, you know, and how can I be an anti-war activist in so many ways, but just completely embracing of the militarism that's at the heart of what it means to be Israeli. And, you know, you live in Israel, you can't walk two steps without coming face to face with that militarism. And it never really, I never really unpacked that or I, I, or I avoided unpacking it. But when I became a rabbi, my own personal struggles became very public and I, they couldn't just be mine anymore. And little by little, my my progressive Zionism began to erode. Uh, and to make a long story short, I finally broke with Zionism at the end of 2008 during Operation Cast Lead in Israel's onslaught on Gaza. And I just, it was just one of those, I can't do this anymore moments. I'd been writing a blog. I wrote very openly that this was these were war crimes i'm tired of making apologies for israel this is just unacceptable and and inexcusable and it can't be defended in any way and i was part of a, a congregation in evanston at the time i'd been there for many years and it caused a lot of a bit of caused a lot of upheaval but we managed to make it work to their credit we really worked hard the leadership of the congregation stood by me and understand that this was a conscience thing for me but there were also many members of my congregation who were just so so angry at me and never really made their peace with it and i became more involved in the movement i got more involved with jewish voice for peace i think you mentioned the the rabbinical council that i helped found and I became more visible and more more vocal, and little by little, it became impossible for me to stay. And that's when I left the congregation. I started working for the American Friends Service Committee, worked with the Quakers. I was a Quaker rabbi, but and then I founded Sedek Chicago shortly after that as well. I mean, I didn't think I'd be able to work as a congregational rabbi anymore, to be honest. I didn't think there was one that would take me. And when we started Sedek, it was really me and some friends who wanted a a, a place to be a spiritual community to be because there wasn't any other place for us and it just grew more than much more quickly than we ever expected and eventually i took over doing it full-time uh, two years ago and uh, that's how we come to present day yeah people were flocking to the margins yeah, the millennials <laughs> the millennials were flocking <laughs> and i gotta say as yeah. somebody who's in the margins it's getting kind of tight in here you know we might want to think about expanding <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh it's it was not it was it was not something i planned in any way it was really a lot of this was very very unexpected but this is really my path and uh you know i i feel very blessed to be able to be part of a congregation where i can really be truly my full self and not have to do this torturous dance moral dance anymore and uh you know and it's for for people who want to be that kind of Jew. And for those who don't dig what we're doing, that's totally fine. There's lots of other congregations for them, but this is, you know, this is for those who who hold to the core values that we've articulated very clearly. Yeah. Mazel tov on everything that y'all are doing. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We so appreciate you and your perspective. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Laura. I really appreciate you reaching out and uh, thank Thank you you for all you do as well. And Mabruk, and uh, God bless you.
Thanks. Thanks so much. Folks, that has been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Go ahead and check out our website, www.palestinepod.com. We will upload our full sources expeditiously, as T.I. says. Follow us on Instagram at thepalestinepod. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com. And check us out on Patreon because we are doing some dope stuff behind that paywall. www.patreon.com slash palestinepod. That's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day. And then what are you recording on? And I mean that with absolutely no disrespect, because it does look like it's a potato right now. (laughs) Let's just do my computer. Okay. Yeah, we're rocking. We're rocking with that. We love that. You a big gamer? Looks like a gamer setup. (laughs) Um, We... Rabbi, I'm so sorry. Can you just uh, put your mic a little bit closer to your to your mouth again? Sure. Sorry. Can you hear me now? Just okay. moved it slightly when you uh, adjusted. When I was when I was gestating. Wildly. Yeah. Um, when you uh, speaking like an Italian. Yeah. <laughs> Going to do a really quick introduction. Growing up in a Zionist household, and what was your path like? And you know some of the response. The usual suspects. Nothing. Nothing too <laughs> out there. I don't know what what Michael has prepared, but I, I imagine it's somewhere along the same lines. I actually, thought we were speaking to Elon Musk today. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> I've got all the wrong questions.